partnership with 2SER 107.3, the Walkley Talks podcast presents the latest episode of Fourth Estate. Fourth Estate is a weekly program about the media, featuring some of Australia's leading journalists. Broadcast live each Monday at 6.30pm on 2SER 107.3. Hello and thank you for joining us across the Community Radio Network for The Fourth Estate, your weekly discussion on all things media and journalism. I'm Rafael Garcia, your host for today. Joining our panel this week, we have Michael Bodie, media journalist and film editor from The Australian. Hello, Michael. G'day. Antoinette Latouf from SBS and The Hoopla. Hello, <laughs> Antoinette. We seem to have lost Antoinette there. We'll just get her back online. We also have um, Josh Taylor in the studio, senior journalist for ZDNet. Hello, Josh. Thanks for having me. And Michaela Whitburn, on the line, investigative reporter at the Sydney Morning Herald. Hello, Michaela. Hello. Hello. Hi. Welcome to the program, everyone. Just make sure we've got Antoinette there. Hello, Antoinette. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Are you there, Antoinette? I am, I am, I'm here, I can hear you. Okay, great, we can hear you now. Okay, so <laughs> welcome, to, welcome to the program, thanks for joining us. Let's get started by turning our attention to the media circus that took place last week during the police raids of homes in Sydney and Brisbane in an attempt to bring down a terrorist plot. There were approximately 800 officers involved in the operation and only two arrests. Um, let's just ignore that for a moment or, or how disproportionate those figures may appear. But I'd like to hear from the panel whether the media coverage was proportionate to the significance of the event. Michael. We perhaps won't know. This is the problem with uh, terror and the war on terror and uh, the sort of confidentiality or the, the protection of sources and, and the like. Um, it was such a new and dramatic thing. And ISIS or ISIL or... It's such a new and dramatic thing. We don't even know what to call it still. I, mean, I don't even know what the, the proper name is. And so things are going to get pretty heated and dramatic in the press because it's not like an everyday news story. This is a pretty major new um, front on, the, on what has been a sort of constant on and off over the last 10 to 15 years. Um, so we're going to find it, we're not going to truly know. I mean, and initially when it started, there was so much stuff going on in newsrooms and on social media about what was happening, and and it wasn't until the next day that some of these things were hosed down, including what was a pretty dramatic news story about they were planning a beheading in Martin Place. So you can imagine that is just such a, an extraordinary thing that everyone jumps on that and. Um, you don't want to be the last to report it, but um, it turned out that perhaps you didn't want to be any of the people that reported it because it turned out to be hearsay. So, look, this is uh, we're treading on very dangerous ground, I suppose, and there's going to be a few mistakes. But I think 
you know, by and large, it was uh, covered quite well. Mm. I'd like to pick up on something you mentioned there, and, spe- and specifically um, the mention of the beheading. The Sydney Morning Herald reported on Friday that um, while beheading was not specifically mentioned in the alleged phone call on Tuesday, it is assumed that this would have been the method of the killing. Michaela, I'd like to hear from you on this one. Should journalists be making such assumptions in their reporting? Uh, well, it's always dangerous to be making assumptions, but it depends of, upon what you're making that assumption, I suppose. And um, I'm sure that the journalists in that particular instance had a reason um, to believe that they could be making that assertion or that assumption, rather. Um, and, you know, it was, it was widespread that report in the media. So it's a difficult one. I'm sure that they did have um, a source or sources who were telling them something along those lines. Um, but, uh, you know, as it turned out... Um, that couldn't be borne out by some of the later reports. So it's hard to know. I mean, it's difficult, and we always try to avoid making assumptions wherever possible. Um, Can I just, um, it's Antoinette here. Can I just um, mention, Tony Abbott did come in, I'm not sure of the timeline, I think it was probably the day after, um, making comments to the effect of, you know, all you need these days to carry out a terrorist attack is a knife uh, and a mobile phone um, and a victim. So mm. I think him coming out and, you know, and, and listing those three things almost made um, the idea that, you know, the beheading was imminent, um, I guess it validated it. But that could, that could be a stabbing, couldn't it? With, you know, with a, with a knife and a more... Well, it could be anything. And I think part of the reason where everyone's in a bit of a flurry is we have seen a random act of violence with the machete guys in London 18 months ago, 12 months ago. Um, so, you know, fear is rife. And I think the reporting, well, I think in some respects, I don't want to defend anyone, but it has been tempered. I think Tony Abbott was tempered. Um, there was, you could argue perhaps that um, a few too many police and defence people got up, stood up and had long press conferences. But I think the the initial sort of uh, press message was pretty tempered and not his, as hysterical as perhaps it would have been 10 years ago. Mm. Josh Taylor, some commentators have expressed concern about perhaps the media provoking moral panic. Has this already happened? Uh, yeah, I definitely think it, it has had, there's been some impact of it. If you look at, um, so the way the way this was reported, obviously it is important for the media to be there and, um, you know, 800 officers involved, it's a huge operation, it's something they should be should be covering. But it's interesting sort of the relationship between the media and uh, and the AFP and, and, and police officers just in general because uh, if, under, the, under the legislation that's currently before Parliament on, on new national security powers, if the media was to report that without the permission of the AFP or ASIO, that that could find them. They they could be in breach. They could go to jail for that. So it's it. You've got this fine balance when you when you're a media organisation of, of whether you're you're just being a PR for what the police are doing, or if you're actually you know finding out what's going on and you actually have some sort of awareness of it. I think I think, you know, you've got to you've got to weigh the balance of you know we we've got to report what these officers are doing, but without actually panicking people because you know like you said, 800 officers for two arrests and and you know a fairly sort of nondescript, vague description of what's actually uh, might happen if, if it's going to be a beheading or a stabbing, we don't actually know. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, um, rather unusual really, that um, some media outlets were actually present during the, during the raids. Um, Antoinette, I'd like to come to you on this one. Why would the police have alerted media of such an operation? 
I don't know. I, I guess um, whenever the the government or you know, ASIO or, or um, you know whatever authority, even the police, when they show when they want to demonstrate that they you know really taking something seriously and cracking down on 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 something, they do invite. And I guess it is a bit of media manipulation. They do invite press and they do invite cameras to come along when it when it suits them. So obviously this was something that our intelligence agencies and our authorities decided that this was a message they wanted to get out. These are the pictures they wanted to get out and I guess everybody ran with it. So it would appear that they, they got what they wanted. Michael, should we expect to see more of this? I think it's at saturation point already. Um, you look at the 6.30 current affairs shows, every second day they're, uh, they're accompanying police on raids of everything from you know, terror suspects to the guy who or woman who didn't uh, pay their parking fine yesterday so it's a it's an obvious pr strategy and you know some of these departments they have more pr people they have more media advisors than the actual media doing uh, covering the rounds so we are being swamped by this stuff i i, I don't think we're going to see more of it i just i think it's it's wholly prevalent today and uh, it is an issue because there are some Raids. This one was an interesting one because in some respects, um, I think having the cameras there has uh, been a, appears to have been a defence in some respects for uh, for allegations of mistreatment by the police. Um, So it's sort of worked in their favour there. But I I think this is rife already. I don't think this is a particularly new phenomenon. Michaela, what are your thoughts on this one? No, I definitely think that there was a strategic reason why the AFP wanted the media there. I mean, obviously, if there were operational concerns, the the media would be the last to know about it. So they they had a PR motivation uh, for sure. That doesn't mean that it's um, illegitimate for the media to cover it, but it does mean that we have to be wary about their motivation. And I think when it comes to covering uh, stories such as this, it's always difficult for the media to, you know, tap into alternative sources of information, but it does mean that we have to be sort of careful in the way we report it and uh, take some time to sort of analyse the reasons why we might be being given certain information and, you know, the other factors at play, which might include, um, you know, anti-terror legislation before the federal parliament this week. Do you think, Michaela, it's, uh, that perhaps the media may have overlooked other domestic matters while throwing really most of their resources at, at this story? I'm not sure that you could say that. It's obviously a big Story, whichever way you look at it, uh, if only because, uh, you know, it was such a major operation. And I think that we'd be doing our readers a disservice if we didn't cover that. I don't think that we get to decide this is just, you know, this is just a PR exercise. We're not going to give it any time at all or not give it, you know, very much coverage. It's, it's still a, a major issue and it should be debated. And I think that we, we gave it the amount of space that it deserved. And in some respects, the real journalism begins now like trying to work out who's done what or who's mm. plotted what, whether there is a money trail, whether these investigations are legitimate. Well, look, we've, I mean, there's been journalists on the trail exposing stuff through uh, some of the social media stuff and sort of the, the horror of it all in some respects. I, it's never too late, I suppose. I mean, you can't... I, I just, I, I feel that the, the moral panic is well and truly, uh, you know, everybody's scared, the hysteria, the, you know, is palpable. I, I just think as much of analysis and um, that journalists can do now, people are frightened as hell. So I almost think, you know, we, we can improve the situation, but I think whatever damage has been done, whatever misreporting has been done is going to be difficult to fix. Antoinette, how could the, mis- how could, um, the moral panic be, have been avoided in this case? 
Oh, I don't know. It's it's difficult because in a newsroom you don't want you don't not want to cover what is the biggest you know terror raid in in Australian history, um, and when there are pictures and and given the speed of social media and the access we had to these pictures, it's really difficult not to run with it. I guess at that point it's hard for, at that point when we're not really asking why and how and what are the motivations we're just at, we're really just reporting the AFP handout mm. um, so it, it's difficult I, I don't know how it could be, could have been avoided but it, it was it, it was a difficult situation I, I think the role for journalists now or in the media in general is to be critical of, of the the national security enforcement uh, that, that are actually putting this in play because you know there's been criticism of journalists for just you know not accepting everything that the AFP and, and, and other security organisations are saying at face value. It's our job to actually critically assess what they're saying and, and yeah. seeing if it, if it matches up against the facts. I think, you know, it, it comes, all these raids and things like that are timed around the introduction of three tranches of national security legislation that will vastly, vastly give the, these organisations much, much more power with, with, you know, not that much more oversight into what they already have. And we need to be actually asking do they need these powers? Considering, so uh, data retention is something that I cover quite a lot. Uh, I asked the AFP, did you use data retention for this? If you if you were able to do it, all these raids without, you know, having these new laws, do you actually need them? And they were like, we can't tell you because the, the case is before the court. So, yeah, I couldn't get anything out of them. But is there, I mean, the timing of it, to, can, we, can we assert there is some sort of conspiracy about the timing? Well, I think there are sceptics who think, you know, a couple of days after Abbott makes his announcement about our commitment in Iraq, uh, you know, less than a week before the national security legislation is to be debated, it's the timing's curious. Yeah, I I think it would uh, be a a very sort of serious allegation to make that, though, decisively that, you know, the government helped to orchestrate these raids and the timing of them to suit its political end. I mean, maybe, you know, I'm sure that there is... uh, a good reason why they would want this sort of information out there now, but whether or not they timed it um, to suit that end is uh, it's a pretty big allegation. Yeah, it's a major allegation to sort of um, assert that the AFP is in cahoots with a government, particularly when um, a lot of some of the reporting of the raids suggested that the AFP's known about these guys and was sitting on them until there was something concrete, and that something concrete was. Uh, the call from the guy in Syria to to do something. Mm. Now we don't know. I'm not quite sure what the precise timing between the raid and that um, exhortation from um, Balieri was made, but we've got to work that out before we. It's a pretty major allegation to allege the the government's in cahoots oh, with the AFP on yeah, this because that, it is that's not what I'm alleging but I know and look the parliament hasn't been sitting so the bills are up now they as mm. opposed to not being up 2 weeks ago so there's all sorts of stuff um but that will be dug up by journalists in the next few weeks, you'd hope. And I think that's, yeah, and again, I'm, I mean, I don't make, I, when I say it's curious, I'm not making that allegation myself, but I think once more of those details surface, like, um, for example, what was the timing of that phone call, given they have known about them from May? Once we know and if we find out more information, I think it'll be clearer as to, you know, whether this was something they really had to jump on and it's just a coincidence that it happened, you know, it happens right in between, Um commitments to Iraq and parliament resuming. Michael, is this the kind of journalism that you were, you were referring to that starts now? Is it, you know, the background and the timing of the phone calls and, and digging deeper into it? Oh, of course. Um, 
Yeah, there's, there's a lot that's been left unsaid and uh, unspoken, and probably perhaps we'll never know. I mean, that's the curi- that that's the real issue with all this terror stuff is that uh, so much of it is cloaked and so much is inaccessible, and possibly will never be accessible because that's the that's the business of um, mm-hmm. of uh, sort of what do we call it spy or sp- the, you know, the AFP. intelligence intelligence is the word that's <laughs> the word I was looking for. Um, <laughs> So yeah, it's a it's a tough field. It's not like uh, you know sport or some area where everything the dirty laundry's out every day of the week and people blab. This is uh, this is a pretty complex area. Sounds like it's complex enough that we want sorted out on this program. So let's move it along. <laughs> You're listening to the Fourth Estate on all things media and journalism. And as we bring you this program, we now know that Scotland will remain in the United Kingdom after the No campaign won at last week's referendum for independence. Michael, we're more than 15,000 kilometers away from Scotland. Why was this such a big story here in Australia? Uh, because um, perhaps it uh, presaged what we might want to do in years to come. I, I just thought it was a good, fun story. Everyone was interested. Um, you know, we're still, for better or worse, a, a very uh, dominant Anglo-Celtic country and with a lot of descendants from there and um yeah i think it's i think it's two million claimed scottish scottish ancestry two million wow that's two million so that's a tenth of our population yeah that's pretty massive but it was just an interesting yeah. story that a country could essentially secede um from a, a, a union that was once the world's greatest empire it was it was just a dramatic story and it was fun there's lots of angles in and uh, we couldn't quite believe it was so close in the end mm-hmm. i think um, Michaela, was most of the reporting here in Australia fairly balanced? There were lots of angles, as, as Michael said, but was it fairly balanced, would you say? Yeah, I think so. I think it was more the reporting in the uh, UK that came under fire for being um, biased. Um, I, I think here in Australia, we didn't have a particular line that we were were taking on this, and the reporting was more about the novelty of it, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I was at a, um, a Scottish pub in the city um, as the votes were being counted, and um, it was a, it was a yes campaign pub, so everybody uh, you know was for independence. And so many people that I'd spoken to were said they were really angry um, at the local pre- not our press um, in the in the United Kingdom, and they just kept saying to me, "Are you going to be fair? Are you going to are you going to air what we're saying? We're yes campaigners. You're not going to use this, are you?" Um, and I was like, of course I'm going to use this. I'm at a yes pub. Um, I, I, and they just, uh, for, for some reason, assumed um, that we, you know, SBS had an agenda and we weren't for independence and we weren't going to air their box pop. So I, I find that I found that quite strange. But obviously that, that um, goes to what you're saying, that there's, you know, allegations of bias. Um, I certainly haven't seen that locally. How many drinks do you think it would have taken them to turn to the no campaign? <laughs> <laughs> you know what, I, I went back there for a live cross hours later and they were still there and they were still drinking they were still holding their yes banners what should we make of Rupert Murdoch's warning that Alex Salmond would have to change course to prosper if he wins Michael what did you think of that well I mean Murdoch was a supporter of Salmon and uh, despite a couple of his London papers um, wanting uh, Scotland not to leave um, he he his uh, support for Salmon's been pretty obvious over many years. Look, it was quite obvious that I think a lot of the British establishment, well, Britain full stop, was worried that if Scotland did 
uh, move away. They would be a, a basket case that was incapable. It's like letting the little kid go before they're 18. I mean, that's what they felt. And there was a lot of, uh, I know there was a lot of uh, claims of bias, but I think the business and the money and the, the establishment of uh, England proper just felt that this would have been a dire prospect for Scotland, no matter what the Scots felt. And um, so I don't think that was a particularly uh, obtuse or uh, bizarre thing for uh, Murdoch to it, say. It was funny watching this, the panic sort of set in the media when it, when it when those last few polls came that out. That last it Times really poll, close. yeah. yeah and yeah, and everyone, everyone started to actually go, well, actually this might happen. And, and that sort of the ramifications began to, uh, to set in. And I think that that... That that determined a lot of the, the coverage of, of uh, the media, and at least in the last few days of, of looking at you know what what the ultimate implications would be, and and I think that's why you saw a lot of um, uh, maybe sort of negative reaction against the, the the no campaign and things like that. And it was funny; it was such a late event too. I, on and off, you you bump into Scots, and in the last year you've been talking to them, and they've been really ambivalent about mm. it all. And it, <laughs> it, it actually it didn't seem as though anyone decided until the last two mm-hmm. weeks and then it suddenly became this flurry <laughs> and all the politicians had to go up there and you know do the last ditch effort so it was a funny we knew about this for a long long time and yet it wasn't a news story until the last month Michaela, um, I'd like to hear from you on this one why why would it have been such a, a last minute event do you think it's because people are hearing more and more about it in the media and then you know they sort of jump on the bandwagon yeah, well, that might have been it. Uh, it's hard to know, really. I guess um, when it comes to referenda, at least in Australia, there's always sort of a sentiment against change. Uh, maybe sort of the ramifications of any change at all didn't really sink in until the last minute. It's hard to say. Hmm. Josh? Yeah, I, I think it was just the, the, the sort of last-minute ramifications of, of what would actually happen. I think from from the Australian point of view, we obviously had our referendum vote that didn't that didn't go anywhere, and, and there's sort of, sort of some sort of uh, I guess link to to comparing the two situations. Obviously, ours would have uh, I, I guess a much uh, it, it would change our system of government a little bit, but um, the the economic and business ramifications aren't that major when you think about it compared to say Scotland becoming its own country. And, and I think that that was they had they had a simple question to answer. But the ramifications were much more than, you know, our really complex referendum question and for something that wouldn't have a huge impact on day-to-day life for a lot of people, I think. so. Mm. And certainly not a whole lot of impact here in Australia or, or not in the near future. I mean, um, much closer to home, really, we had the New Zealand and the Fiji elections. Antoinette, do you feel that we heard a lot less about, say, the, the elections in New Zealand, for example, than Scotland? Well, I feel I feel we heard less about it. Um I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's this Australian arrogance, but I feel that Australians aren't all that interested in a lot in a lot that happens in New Zealand <laughs> unless it's sport. Um, so yeah, that, that's my that's my feeling. But yeah, there was um, particularly in the the last couple of days of the the Scottish campaign. Um, that um that that definitely got a lot of coverage. I don't feel New Zealand got quite as much. I, I or at least from from the way we covered it, because there, there was a big uh, dot com yeah. uh, event that had you know Julian Assange and Edward Snowden and and Gren Greenwald all, all all appearing there, and that that was quite a big thing. But then when the votes actually turned out in New Zealand, there just wasn't all that many votes for for Kim dot com's party. So what seemed like a huge event in New Zealand actually had little impact on the, the actual outcome of the election at all. And it seemed to be a pretty dull campaign, mm. other than the allegations of impropriety against uh, the PM, John Key. There, there weren't really any really good stories or good biffo or anything. And um, so, you know, it, it just wasn't newsworthy enough, They perhaps. needed more scandal. They needed yeah, more scandal. they did. 
Staying in New Zealand for, for a moment, we'll just um, quickly touch on this one. A high court ruling in New Zealand has classified bloggers as journalists, granting them the same right to claim shield law, for example, um, protection in defamation cases. Josh, do you agree with the decision? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think, but it, it comes down to that sort of definition of, of what is a journalist versus what is a blogger. I think this particular case, this uh, this particular blogger is um, is quite uh, well known in New Zealand and, and quite popular with with what he does. So I can see he's built up a brand. He, he's probably more on the on the edge of being a journalist, and therefore, like I can see why the court went and said, "Oh, he's a journalist. He should be able to protect his sources and things like that." But I think it's it's kind of one of those things you have to determine on a case by case basis. If you look at um, the most recent uh, parliamentary report on the the first section of national security laws, they were reluctant to provide a protection for journalists uh, against the reporting of these these sorts of uh, national security uh, events and things like that because. It, then they would get into an argument about what is a journalist and they didn't really want to address that. So it, mm. it's one of those things that's going to be really, really hard to determine. Michaela, could this have an impact here in Australia? I don't know that it will in the sense that uh, bloggers often are considered uh, journalists here already. Um, obviously, you know, if a blogger makes defamatory statements, they'll be sued in the same way that a professional journalist is and they'll have to sort of wear the consequences of that um, and more directly as well because they usually don't have a well-resourced media organisation behind them to fight those claims. And when it comes to shield laws, um, you know, the definition of journalist is probably wide enough to, to fit them as well, um, provided that they're sort of in the... In the business or or um, produce news, um, so I'm not sure that it really does have widespread implications for Australia. Michael, how how would a similar ruling in Australia change the media landscape? Well, this is just another messy subset of the bigger problem that's um, you know really crawling the media sector is who's regulated or in what is a fragmented and deregulated industry now. So. I don't think anyone really cares whether bloggers call themselves journalists or vice versa. I mean, you know, I put up three stories online today. Am I a blogger or, you know, it's sort of, it's yesterday's news in some respect. A a blogger is a journalist if they, if they want, if they want the benefits of journalism, such as shield laws, well, they've got to abide by, you know, the other stuff, which is Mm. codes of ethics and rulings by the press council or whatever. And I think, Definitions. We can just argue about definitions forever and a day, but if a blogger wants, you know, wants the protections of journalism, they've got to sign up to. And you know, most what we would regard as you know blogging websites now, the major ones are uh, are doing that. But geez, there's some really crazy <laughs> sort of theories and definitions. I mean, I, I, we took a family around Australia and did a travel blog just for our friends. It would have been considered under the Finkelstein recommendations <laughs> as a, a regulatable uh, or a, a blog that's worth uh, regulating. It's just absurd. So I think we just carry on. And if you want the protection, sign up. And if you don't, don't don't sort of be hypocritical or, or take this piece and not that piece. Yeah, I think you have to not define a, a person. Like you, you shouldn't say a person is a journalist or a blogger. You should define what they're doing. So if you, you're performing an act of journalism, then that, active journalism provided it meets certain guidelines like code of ethics things like that Mm. um then that would be protected but you can't really i guess class someone as being a journalist or a blogger because you know that's a flexible definition just lastly and very briefly from antoinette on this one is it fair to accord bloggers the same rights as journalists um i guess um just adding on to what some of um the other panelists are saying it just it just depends on i think it's a real case-by-case basis it depends um you know if this guy sitting at home 
you know. Uh, I don't know. I did, there's just a... Hello, you there? We seem to have lost Antoinette there. Um, that brings us to the end of another fourth estate. We've been talking to Michaela Whitburn, investigative reporter at the Sydney Morning Herald, Michael Bodie, media journalist and film editor from The Australian, Josh Taylor, senior journalist from ZDNet, and Antoinette Latouf, who you just heard there, from SBS and The Hoopla. Thank you all for joining us. The fourth estate is produced from the studios of 2SER in Sydney, and if you'd like to listen to any of our stories again, you can do so on our website 2SER.com. You can follow us or get in touch with us via Twitter using the handle 4th Estate AU. That's all letters, no numbers. Join us again next week for more discussion on media and journalism across the Community Radio Network. I'm Rafael Garcia. Have a great week. enjoyed this week's episode of 2SER's Fourth Estate. Fourth Estate is produced by 2SER 107.3 and can be heard live each Monday at 6.30pm on 2SER's 107.3, 2SER's digital, 2SER.com and around Australia on the Community Radio Network. See the program description for all the links to follow 2SER and Fourth Estate on Twitter and Facebook. Subscribe to Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook for new episode updates and to be the first to know about upcoming Walkley's news and events.